take that Bible this morning and look over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we come to just a critical, critical section in chapter 2 verses. Really, we're looking at 14 through 26, and this morning we're paying particular attention to verses 21 through 24. I said a couple weeks back that since I've been living here in the valley in the last year and a half or so, that I made a comment that I think one of the greatest weaknesses or greatest areas of just personal prayer for us and desire for us as a church is I mentioned that I just really feel that there's a general lack of discernment. And I certainly don't so much mean that with us, that I was saying that against our church, but just in general, amongst the population, amongst those who claim Christ, just a lack of discernment regarding truth and regarding even here in this passage, the nature of saving faith. So here is a passage that demands a serious look for us as a local church. One of the beauties of expositing the scripture is that when you get there, you just have to kind of go through it. And here we are. Now, what we have here in 2.14 through 26 is the relationship between saving faith and the fruit of faith, and namely that they are inseparably linked. In other words, there's saving faith, but there is fruit that comes from that faith. They are linked together. Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, We are sure that men are not saved for the sake of their works. He said, but yet we are equally sure that no man will be saved without them. How very true. Salvation as we know it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. However, salvation that is by grace alone is never truly alone. Works accompany that faith. Even Martin Luther put it this way. He said, quote, Oh, faith is a living, a restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. Luther went on to say, It is impossible to separate works from faith He said, as to separate heat and light from fire. Now, don't misunderstand me as we walk through this text. James' argument is not that works must be added to faith for salvation, but that genuine faith produces works. And so as James has walked us through this epistle here, through his letter, we're looking at his theme. What are the marks of genuine faith? And we've walked through that section on trials. We've looked, secondly, that our faith is tested in temptation. Thirdly, that it's tested in our obedience to the Word of God. Fourthly, it's tested and our faith is revealed in one's reaction to partiality. And now, here this morning and next week as well, faith is tested in our relationship to works. That's in chapter 2, 14 through 26. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that this is, this little paragraph in which we're in, the most extensive subject matter 
in the letter of James. I think it's interesting as you look for the, what is 14 through 26 about? Of the 16 different times that the word faith is addressed in this letter, 11 of them are right here in this passage. And then when you look at the whole book of the 15 occurrences of the word for works or deeds, 12 of them are right here. And so very well, this relationship between faith and works. Now, look down at the Scripture. The key for this whole paragraph is that opening set of questions in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the answer, obviously, in the language here, is no. That kind of faith, without any accompanying works to it, cannot save. For James, the profession of faith, lacking in works that accompany that profession, will not save. Now, now the questions, plural, there's two of them, verse 14, are really centered around an empty profession. You'll note that the text says, look again at verse 14. This is key. If someone says he has faith. James doesn't say if one has faith. The emphasis is on the word says. Now, here in this language here in 2.14, this person is repeatedly advancing this claim. In other words, you meet people like that. They are advancing the claim of faith. In fact, in this context, this man regards himself as a believer. He regards himself as orthodox in his belief. There's no question in my mind that he would affirm Jesus as Messiah, that he would affirm here even his death, that he would affirm his resurrection. James will go on to say that even the demons believe and shudder. But James would come back and say, what use is this or what good is this if he says he has faith but he has no works? James is asking, can an inactive faith save him? And the answer, of course, is... Of course not. In fact, there's no argument on what he's after here. I'll show you what he's after. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. He says it there. He said, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, James says, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. In other words, it's empty. So it's dead. It's useless. It's empty. Look down at 224. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then the final assessment is 26, is that for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, and we understand that, so also faith apart from works is dead. There is his thesis. So then the question would arise, how then can one be sure they possess genuine faith? How can you understand if you have the true living faith that is active? And what James does in this text from 14 down through 26 is he just gives us four illustrations that define the nature of true saving faith. 
The first two illustrations describe a faith that is dead, that is useless. I think those will come up on the screen, and I think we, we looked at these two get, together. We look first at the hypocritical compassion. Look down at the text. Do you remember that? In verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He concludes, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So in other words, according to James, you can claim faith, but if hypocritically you do not meet the brother or sister's needs that is in your presence, then how does your faith work? He he would actually say in verse 17, it's dead. Then he gave us a second negative somewhat illustration, one of intellectual confession. You remember that in verse 18? Someone will say that you have faith and I have works. In other words, they're saying, okay, James, You've got the faith and, and, and I have the works, but he reverses it. In other words, it's an either-or proposition. Somebody's got faith, somebody's got works. James enters in and says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And then he says there, just by way of summary, do you want to, to, to be shown, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless. And so he goes on to give these two opening illustrations that are negative in nature, hypocritical compassion, and here intellectual confession. Apart from a demonstration of that faith, that type of faith is dead. That type of faith is useless. Now what he'll do going forward is this week and then next week is he provides two positive examples of a genuine faith. I mean, if that's what faith is not, then what does it look like? And he'll take us to the positive illustration of Abraham, the patriarch. And then next week, he'll take us to Rahab, the prostitute. And both of those will be demonstrated and shown that their faith was validated by what they did with what they professed. And you couldn't get more than opposite extremes here, could you? I mean, you got Abraham, the patriarch, and then you got Rahab, the prostitute. So for our time this morning, let me take you to this third illustration of what does the faith actually look like, and we'll call it authentic Abraham. Authentic Abraham. Crucial passage for us. I don't think I've preached on anything more important than this, although I probably say that every week, though. Um, But this is just vital, and we've got to dive into it. And of course, our focus will be on the words of Scripture. Let me pick up this third illustration, Authentic Abraham, and look at verse 21. There, James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Stop there for a moment. The answer, of course, implied is, yes, he was. Now, if you can, as we walk into this text, just keep a couple things in your mind. As you look at verse 21 through 24, obviously, we're looking at the illustration of Abraham. But there's two events here that, are, that James is going to address two crucial events in Abraham's life. One that we just read is the offering of his one and only son Isaac on the altar 
that we'll look at in just a moment in Genesis 22. But secondly, there's a second time frame here. Look down at verse um, 23, where it said, The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Understand, that's, a, that's another event in Abraham's life. So if you can just wrap this in your mind, and then we'll walk through it. The event with Isaac on the altar is in Genesis 22. Here in verse 23, when he talks about Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, is in Genesis chapter 15. And we'll walk through that in this text, okay? But as we look at, at, the, at Abraham, the implied answer, was he not justified by works when he offered up Isaac? The answer is yes. And we would say it was, according to the Scripture, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son that justified him before God. And I'll have to articulate that. Now, look again down at the Scripture as you just open that phrase there. Was not, and he's called Abraham our father, okay? We know that Abraham is the respected patriarch, the father of of the Jewish people. So it could be that as James picks up his pen under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's addressing this, and Jewish people are reading it, and they're reading about Abraham, our father. Certainly, they're aware of Abraham. He is their patriarch. He is what Paul said in Romans 4.1. There, it says that he is the forefather according to the flesh. But it's not just for Jewish people, if you will. He is also the father spiritually for all believers. He is the spiritual father of all who believes. It says that in Romans as well. So Abraham is a very key player. Now to understand then the authentic faith of Abraham, let me just arrange our text around a series of statements as we walk through it. Let's just first look at the historical event. Okay, the historical event. Now, look down in verse 21 again. You can see he's referring to that. He's referring to our father being Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Let's go back to that event. Take your Bible, look back to Genesis chapter 22, and we will be going back and forth just a little bit. Some of you are very familiar with this story, but others of you... Maybe only just have touched on it. Let me take you back to that place where he was justified, at least what James says. You recall there in this event in Genesis 22, you remember back in Genesis 15, it was there that he believed in the promises of God and it was there that God reckoned it to him as righteousness. But you get to Genesis chapter 22 and you remember the account Isaac was born. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 12? Back in Genesis chapter 15, God took Abram, at one point his name was Abram, out, showed him the stars of the sky, showed him the sand of the seashore, and told Abram that that is how your descendants shall be. Remember, God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, the father of many nations, and he went years without a child, right? He went years without an heir from his own lineage, if you will. And finally, God opened up his wife's womb at the age of nearly a hundred. She gave birth to that son of the promise. That son, as you know, was Isaac. 
Isaac is somewhat down the years here in this account. And look what happens at this point. It says in 22.1, after these things, God, amazing, tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Stop just for a second. I I just think when I get to that word test, I, I just always, my mind goes off. Because Abraham's been a believer for many years now. But yet down the road in that path of his journey of faith, God was going to test him. God was going to put him in a crucible. God was going to, if you will, test his, his, his uh, faith and put it to the test so that he would grow. Remember I said earlier in James 1, whenever God tests us, he always tests us for our growth and for our maturity. He never tests us to submarine our faith. He tests us that we would grow. But Abraham, certainly back to Genesis 15, is a believer. And so he's going to test him. Look what he says to him in 22.2. He said, take your son. Imagine this. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go in the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. Wow. God called Abraham to sacrifice the most cherished possession in all of his life. He asked him for his only son, who was actually to be the blessing of Abraham's heritage. I mean, if you just read that, and I hope you know we don't just read it and move on, that is a shocking statement. It is one of the most shocking statements, actually, in all of the Bible. I mean, can you just put yourself back in Abraham's shoes or his sandals at that point? And imagine the horror that Abraham felt when he heard that. You go up to this mountain, and I'll tell you at this place, and I want you, in verse 2, to offer your son as a burnt offering on that mountain. So how did he respond? Well, amazingly, without wavering, look at the text in verse 3. It says there in 22.3, unbelievably, he says, so Abraham rose, bam, Early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Wow. God said it. Bam. God said, I want you to do this. He was up early the next morning. Listen, without wavering, without any kind of hesitation here, in absolute obedience to God, he honors God, gets up early in the morning, takes his son, and goes up to the mountain. So what happened? Well, look down at 22.4. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham, um, it says, said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, And I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. There they go. You have it right there. He's going to return to them. I I think Kent Hughes expressed it well right here. Here's how he wrote about this event. He said, Isaac's dawning realization that he was the sacrifice, the construction of the altar, Isaac's voluntary submission to his aged father as he was bound. The emotion between the lines of the story. 
the sobbing, the kisses, the tears, the terrible blade in his father's trembling hand, the nausea, the darkness, the imminent convulsions of his only son all shows only the tip of Abraham's emotions. Can you imagine that scene? You say, how old was Isaac? I mean, okay, he's, he's putting him on the altar. He's building it. He's binding him to it. If you think he's a baby, okay? He's probably close to 30 at this point. Somewhere in between chronologically 20 to 30. He is strapping on that altar, on that altar a son, not even a young boy, not a teenager, a grown man at that point. It's unbelievable. And you know the account. You say, well, maybe he did it and he wasn't going to he wasn't going to go through with it. Well, no, look at 22. It says in verse nine, when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there in the wood in order and bound Isaac. Imagine binding him to that his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, let me just make a little comment there, just for free on verse 10. When it says that he reached out his hand and took the knife, the thought in the Hebrew language is he just didn't take it, like if this is the knife, okay? It's not like that he took it, okay? What the Hebrew is saying there in verse 10, he took it, and here's where he was. And oh, my, I got a problem with my shoulder. That hurts. Um, he, he, I got to get that fixed, Patty. I can't believe that. He took it, okay? I'll go lefty. And, and really the text says is that he was, he was coming down with that. And you say, well, what happened? Well, look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What a precious, precious truth. You say, well, how could Abraham have done that? You mean, Pastor, his arm was up? Yes, in the Hebrew. He was almost in the motion of coming down when the angel said, stop, and he stopped. And I think, as you know, how he can do that is he knew in his heart that regardless of what happened, Isaac would what? He would be resurrected. You say, well, well, how do you know that? Well, he did already say, did you not see that there when, when it says in uh, where is that? In 22, uh, 4, uh, he said to the young men, 5, stay here, the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and what? And come again to you. So he was going to take him and offer him, but, but Abraham obviously believed that he was going to bring Isaac back to them. And obviously, you know, there's another account that sheds light on that. And I think just for the sake of me saying it, and I was, I want you to turn to it. Look over, to, look over to Hebrews. You know this, I think many of you. But if you don't, then I want you to see it with your eyes. Because Abraham is listed in the hall of fame. You know that. In Hebrews chapter 11. And he, the writer refers to this account. And just so you can see it with your eyes. 
Here in Hebrews chapter 11, as you turn there, as he cites these heroes of faith, you know that the writer said this in eleven seventeen: By faith, Abraham, I love how he even quoted this. When he was tested, that's what it says in 22.1, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is written, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I mean, just stop there for a second. Imagine waiting all those years for the birth of this guy. And then he comes to a woman that's a hundred. Then he grows to be a young man. And God says, go up to to Mount Moriah. It's incredible. In fact, look at verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Verse 19, he considers, what it says about Abraham, that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So here what was in his mind. Listen, this is the promise. God, I believe in you. God, my faith is in you. I believed in you at Genesis 15. I believe that if I take his life, you, is what it says in Hebrews, we're going to raise him again. In fact, later on in the book of Genesis, you don't have to go back there, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham. He said, because you have done this, It's huge. And not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore and in your offspring shall be the, it says the nations of the earth shall be blessed because in 22, uh, 18, you have obeyed my voice. Okay? So listen, lock in your mind That's the historical event. That's the event. It was the act of Abraham, watch this, that James argues uh, that that he was justified by works. Now, look back there in, in James, okay? Let me just show you that, okay? He says there in, and I'm looking in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works. Very clear. In fact, he said in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered him up? That's the historical event. But secondly now, that brings us, does it not, to an apparent, I say apparent, but an apparent contradiction. Because if you've been in the faith for a little while, James secondly here appears, appears to contradict Paul. And the tension between Paul and James is really apparent when you set them side by side and you look at their statements regarding justification from the respective authors. You can see here in 2.24 of James that it says that a person is justified by what? Works. And yet when you go over to Paul... In fact, take your Bible. Look over in Romans now. Go over to Romans. We've got to make sense of this, okay? Because we know that they're not contradictory, but it looks that way. You have statements like this of Paul in 
in, uh, in the book of Romans. Look over at Romans chapter 3 in verse 20. It looks that he says the exact opposite. He says, does Paul in Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be what? Justified in his sight. Since through the law, the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, we understand, we do here this morning, no one is saved by their works. In fact, Paul says very clear that by works of the law, nobody is ever going to be saved. In fact, look again at the scripture in 3, in verse 24 of Romans. There he says, we are justified by his, what is it? By his grace. That's the truth, right? When you were justified, and what does justified mean? It means to be declared righteous. You, if you're in Christ this morning, are justified certainly not by anything you did. You're justified, declared righteous in the sight of God as a gift, it says, of his grace there. Scripture goes on. Look at verse 26. There it says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith, if you will, is the instrument that God uses. It never works. Look at verse 20, 28. Couldn't be clear. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we understand that. In fact, you can even go back if you want. Go back to Romans 3.21. There he says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith for all who believe. Justification, again, that was what the Reformation was all about, completely comes to us by grace through the means of faith, and it is utterly apart from works. Now, how do we deal with that? In fact, before I go on, look over at Romans 4. Paul uses Abraham as an example of this. He says, what shall we then say was gained? And I'm in 4.1 by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before who? God. Listen, we, this is the gospel. He wasn't justified by works. If he was justified and made right by his works, then Abraham can boast. Look what I've done. You could boast. Look at the things you do. Look at the works you do. He says he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, it says his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due. Right? You get that. If you go to work and you receive wages, those wages that you receive from your job of employment are not a gift. They're actually what is due you for the time you put in. So he says in 4 or 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is all over that the gospel is the gospel of grace alone. In Christ alone, through faith alone. 
And so when you come to this, you've got the statement in 2.24 that Abraham's justified by works, and yet Paul seems to say, and does actually, the exact opposite of that. Let me just show you. It doesn't just end in Romans. Look over in Galatians just for a moment. In Galatians chapter 2, there, very crucial that we see this. In Galatians chapter 2, just reiterating what Paul already wrote. He wrote Romans. He wrote Galatians. He wrote this, did Paul, in Galatians 2, verse 16. Look what he says there. He says, For we know that the person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we who have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the words of the law, no one will be justified. And this is what he looked down at chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 6. And I think we have it right there on the screen. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Next slide would even say the same thing. In Galatians chapter 3, In verse 11, it says that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Now, you know that in in history, that Luther was so opposed to the Catholic teaching of salvation by works and such a defender of salvation by grace alone that at one point in his own life, he called James a right strawy epistle because it was so different than than what Paul was saying. So how do we solve this apparent contradiction? Let me bring you to point number three. That's the apparent contradiction. How do we solve that apparent contradiction? Well, let me just clarify something for you that will be very, very helpful. That word for justified that is used both by Paul and by James is the Greek word dikaiou, okay? But that word dikaiou has two meanings to it, okay? And depending on the context, it can either mean, number one, to declare a person righteous. If I asked you the meaning of justification, you would probably say that. It means to declare a person righteous, Justification, just to touch on it, is a judicial verdict by God and a declaration of innocence being pronounced over the sinner. So that when you come to Christ and when you come to him by faith through grace as a gift, he justifies you. He declares you righteous. He pronounces a not guilty sentence on you and makes you at that moment right before him. And that's the common use of how Paul uses it. He says that we were justified as a gift of his grace. That's that first meaning, that we were justified. He said in Romans 3, apart from the law. He says in Romans 5, 1, that we have been justified by faith. It is a declaration of righteousness. But here's key. Secondly, that verb, dikaiu, also means proof of righteousness. It literally means as well in the context to show to be righteous. Uh, and, And the thought is to show to be righteous by a demonstration of actions that are observable, if you will, to all. And it is in that second sense 
that James uses Dikayu, and he asks rhetorically, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac? And the answer is yes. In other words, let me, let me untangle this. The proof of justification for Abraham occurred when he offered up Isaac on the altar. It was then and there that the whole world could perceive the reality of his faith. That his faith, namely, in Genesis 22, was genuine, as one writer said, rather than spurious. That his faith was obedient rather than deceptive. That his faith was living rather than dead. So that then, beloved, Abraham's act of faith in Genesis 22 was the validation that his faith was authentic and sincere. So that's that second way that that word is used. It means to validate. And when he offered up his son Isaac, he validated that his faith was authentic and thus sincere. So Paul uses justify, don't misunderstand, to mean pronounced or declared righteous in the sight of God. James uses justified to mean proved righteous in the sight of others. In fact, they're coming at it from two different angles. Paul is showing how an unbeliever, if you will, becomes a Christian. James is showing how a believer lives the Christian life. Let me see if I can explain it by way of a diagram. I want this to be so clear to you, okay? Paul calls attention to the root of what happens at the moment of salvation. James is calling attention to the fruit, looking at what happens after salvation. Paul is looking at the cause of justification, namely faith, and sees it from God's vantage. James is looking at the effects of justification and sees it from man's viewpoint. Here, Paul, on that left side, is deals with justification. James is dealing with validation, is he not? You say you have faith, show me Show me that faith. Validate that faith. Don't say you have faith and then someone comes to you and you say to them, you know, go, be warmed, be filled. Validate that faith. You say you have faith. Hey, you do well. The demons even say they have faith. Validate that faith. That's what James is after. Here, Paul is dealing with requirements. James is dealing with the results. So clearly, Paul and James are not contradicting each other they are beautifully complementing one another. Now, let me just reel you back in. The Bible plainly teaches that salvation is by grace through faith, period. But the Bible also teaches that true saving faith will always find expression in a life of obedience. Not a life of perfection, but a life of obedience. So, beloved, we are saved by grace through faith, not a result of works, but we also are said to be created for what? Good works. And so you can't separate the two of them. The root of our salvation is grace through faith. The fruit of our salvation is good works. 
Or to say it another way, visible fruit is simply the outward evidence of a real and living faith. In fact, look back now at James, and I think this will become clear to you. Stay with me in this argument. Look back at James, because he goes on to explain this in verse 22. Very key. He said in James 2.22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith, it says this, was completed by his works. Now, look at that opening statement, that faith, verse 22, was active along with his works. That, that idea there of something active along with is, is the Greek word sunergo, okay? In other words, his faith expressed was working with his works. His faith, this is what it means, was cooperating with his works. His faith and his works were working together. They were assisting each other. His works then supported the fact that his faith was alive. So, beloved, once Abraham had come to saving faith back in Genesis, his subsequent works produced a healthy, ongoing synergism of faith and works. In fact, look what the text says. Look back down in 22. And it says that his faith was completed by his works. Another translation says that his faith was perfected. Now, you see that there in verse 22, that his faith was completed by his works. You say, what does that mean? It just simply means this, and I think you understand this. It just means that his faith was completed or his faith was perfected. It just means that his faith was brought to maturity. In other words, just as trials back in James 1 produce maturity, faith is matured through obedience. So Abraham's faith was completed, it was perfected, it was matured as he obeyed God in the trial. And that is why Genesis twenty two twelve says, Now I know, there the angel said, that you fear God. And let me just make this point real clear. Abraham's faith, you would agree, was perfected by his works. That implies, though, beloved, that his faith came first and was matured by his works. So I have no problem here. Implied in this text is his faith preceded his works. It was his works, if you will, that matured the faith that was already there. In fact, glance down in your Bible at 2.23. Amazing text. You don't want to miss this. And it says there that the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. And it says that he was called a friend of God. Now, walk with me on this. Amazing in in James' mind. As he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, James says here in 2.23 that the scripture was fulfilled. Well, what scripture was fulfilled? Well, you can see it there in your Bible in 23. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
You say, is that the same account? No, that's not the same account. Go back now in your Bible to Genesis 15, okay? I find this very interesting. Go back to Genesis chapter 15, okay? And here, this brings us to that fourth point we're on, the fulfillment of the Scripture. I'm explaining that fourth point. Here, in, you remember Genesis? He had to go chase down rescue Lot, remember that? He blessed Melchizedek. You come to 15.1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield and your reward will be very great. But Abram, you see his notice his name there in 15.2, it's not Abraham, it's Abram. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what shall you give me? For I continue, right, childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, behold, you have given me no offspring, even though he gave him that promise in Genesis 12, right? And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man, imagine that, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and the number of the stars. And if you you were able to add them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. Now remember, this could be This could be close to 25 years after Genesis 12. He's 25 years down the line after the promise. And I think I've shared that with you before. I think it might have been kind of embarrassing for him. His name was changed to Abraham, but he still has no kids here. And God said, took him out again, reminded him of his promise, and look at his response. Just a classic passage in 15.6. And he, Abraham, Believe the Lord, and he counted it to him as what? Righteousness. What a text. That's what James quotes. James actually quotes that when he went and offered Isaac in Genesis 22, that this scripture, he says, was fulfilled. Now, let me, let me just back up one important place, and this is for you. This is not just history, okay? But it is history, but it's for you to know it. It's important to know the timing of these two events that are listed here. God in Genesis 15, 6 reckoned Abraham to be righteous. Now, you and I would say that's what it means to be a Christian. When you trusted Christ, at that moment, he declared you righteous. At that moment, when you trusted Christ, you became a believer in the same way Abraham did. Everybody in the Old Testament is saved exactly like you were. Everybody in the entire world that is a believer has always been saved by the same way, by grace, through faith, in Christ. Here, he's writing before Christ, Abraham's faith was in the promised son. Ours faith is looking back at the promised son who came, but everybody's saved in the same way. He was saved here. He believed God. He was saved. God justified Abraham at the moment of believing. We know that we are sure of that. But watch this. This is is what hit me, because this is for you. When you fast forward to the event of Isaac on Mount Moriah, the question would be, How many years difference is there from Genesis 15, 6 to Genesis 22? I mean, we just read Genesis 15, Abraham, look, stars of the sky, sand of the seashore, so shall your descendants be. 
Genesis 22, he finally gets that son Isaac, and now he's going to offer him up on the altar. How many years, you ask? Well, I don't know. The gap there, I might have mentioned a little bit. The gap was 30 years from the events of those chapters. Some rabbis say it was 50 years. So I just want to give you a little bit of an idea. Watch this. Having believed in the promises of God in Genesis 15, Abraham himself was put to the test, can we say it this way, 30 years later. He was already a believer. Do you understand that? 30, and if the rabbi's right, close to 50, which I think might be a lot, tested Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. And you know the account. We've walked through it. Abraham obeyed God. And what James is saying is that his, his act of obedience validated his faith. Listen, what Abraham did in offering up Isaac in Genesis 22 was the outworking of his faith described in Genesis 15. God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15, 6. But in Genesis 22, Abraham's faith is put on display and validated before all. And so his works, here's the point, confirmed God's declaration of righteousness in Genesis 15, 6, 30 years later. You say, well, then what did his act of Isaac do in you know, attempting to offer him up? Listen. It matured his faith. It perfected his faith. It completed his faith. So for James, listen, the activity on the mountaintop in Genesis 22 is but the fruit of his faith from Genesis 15. And the obedient offering of Isaac in 22 fulfilled, is what James said, the scripture of Genesis 15. Now, again, when he says back in James that this is a fulfillment, don't understand it as a fulfillment of prophecy. Rather, it is a fulfillment in the sense of completing his faith or maturing his faith as we saw in verse 22. So I think it's very clear. Listen, let me say it again. Let me, let me put it this way. Let me draw us down here. Clearly, we cannot earn our salvation. God saves us by his grace. However, high schoolers, junior hires, parents, visible fruit is the external evidence of a vital faith. So that faith and works, and this is his point, they're inseparable. And now look back in the book of James. It says there, as he completed that act, I like how James said it, and he was called a friend of God. What an incredible title there in two. 23. What it said, that title given to Abraham resulted in his deep abiding faith in God and his practical obedience demonstrated in and on Mount Moriah. I mean, how would you like to be called a friend of God? Well, the truth is you can because Jesus said in John 15, you are my friends if you do what I, what? Command you. If you want to be a friend of God, then be like righteous Abraham, authentic Abraham who obeyed. So the child of God living in obedience to God's revealed will is faithful like Abraham who was a friend of God. Look how he closes this out in 224. 
He says, does James, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, all he's saying there is he returns to his argument. You say, what argument? Well, look back, see it with your eyes, 2.14. He says, what good is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? The answer would be no. The argument again is in verse 2.17. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And if you get down next week to Rahab, it says, for the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so the deeds complete or show the maturity of the faith, the works are simply the outgrowth of a faith that is genuine. So I'll say it again. Faith indeed saves, but listen, a fruitless, dead faith cannot save. James is not attacking faith in Christ, but he is attacking a bogus faith that a person may claim to have. James could not be any clearer here. Can that faith save in verse 14? No. He insists here that they are inseparable. That's the point. Now, let me just say this to you. In the same way, okay, that Abraham's works revealed his faith, okay, so too for any who would claim Christ this morning, you must show your faith by your actions. Fair? Jesus said, you know this, that you will know them by their, what? Fruits. You don't know somebody by what they profess. Talk is cheap. You will know them by their actions, okay? In fact, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Listen, as we live in an agricultural area, just as trees bear fruit, so too the believer bears fruit in acts of faith that demonstrate his faith is alive. And I'll say it again, the works do not bring us to Christ But would you agree here in this text? They certainly follow after we come to Christ like Abraham on Mount Moriah. Let me see if I could point you to a little bit of a scheme here. Bring that up, okay? To put it schematically, there are four ways to view the relationship between salvation and works, okay? The equal signs, okay, that that equal signs means produces or results in. So view one says that works produce or result in salvation. View two says that faith plus works produces or results in salvation. View three says faith produces or results in salvation. And view number four says that faith, okay, produces or results in salvation plus works. Now, as you look at those on the screen, okay, view view one says if we do enough good works, 
they produce salvation because we can earn God's favor. View 2 says that if we believe and perform works, we can obtain salvation. View 3 says that faith results in salvation. And view 4 says that faith leads to salvation and the works follow. Let me summarize this. No Christian adheres to view 1, right? Done. That's the gospel. None of us ever believe that your works can equal your salvation. That's every false religion in the world, okay? We know that. Secondly, the Catholics adhere to verse 2, don't they? Now, I'm not trying to be mean. If you're Catholic, I'm not trying to... um, I don't look like like I'm exercised here, do I? That's what Catholics believe. You know that. They believe that in their councils and in their doctrines that faith plus works produces and results in salvation. View 3 actually says, okay, that faith results in salvation. And some people, some even evangelicals, I would say affirm view 3 because they confess, because they believe if you confess Christ without accepting him as Lord, they would say, and we've talked about that, that lordship is not necessary. That when you begin to talk about acts of obedience, then you strip it of grace. But as our study, as we studied 1 John, we don't believe that. As we've studied the book of faith, that is not what James is saying. View 4 is what we affirm. That the entire New Testament testifies that we are saved by faith alone. Real faith is never, what? Alone. So there's what we believe, that salvation, faith equals salvation. It's produced, it results in salvation, but the salvation itself then results in acts of obedience. So that's just so you can help see it. But if I just applied it one way, and I read this of an author, and I just, I I thought it was just so helpful. And I mean this to say this to you, because up at this up till this time, I might just be talking about Abraham. What's the takeaway here? Well, it's this, okay? What kind of works vindicate true salvation? What is it that he's talking about that display the true nature of saving faith? And I was kind of racking my brain on this. You, you might ask this question, is James talking about going to church? Huh, no. He doesn't say even here in the text that Abraham built an, author, you know, an altar and he worshiped God. In, in fact, in both cases, both in Abraham and Rahab, as we'll see, the visible vindication of their justification, no, was this, was putting their life and their dreams and their hopes on the line, right? That is the kind of work here that James wants us to have. To believe God is to understand it is demonstrated in a life of faith. It isn't that you go to church. It isn't that you read a Bible. It isn't that you sing in worship. It is this, that you are so supremely committed to God that you would sacrifice all your hopes all your dreams, all your ambitions, and yes, you would even risk your own life to be true to the faith. That's the issue. Because for Abraham, he risked it all, his son. 
For Rahab, she was actually risking her life. In fact, does it not echo when Jesus said, if you're not willing to take up the cross and follow me, you are not worthy to be my what? Disciple. The issue is when it comes down to the crux of why you live and what is valuable to you is your faith in God ought to be more valuable to you than everything you hold dear that you'd put all your life on the line, all your hopes on the line, all your dreams on the line, because you have such an implicit and total trust in him. That's the issue. The issue comes down to the crucible of life's circumstances, the difficult decisions. So I want to just say this. I have no idea where you are today, but you might be at Mount Moriah today, 30 years down the road. That's the point. You might have got saved 30 years ago or 20 years ago, but he might have you at a place right now where he's asking you to give away your hopes, your ambitions, and the things you cherish because you want to follow him. In other words, you might be at a place at a business where you, don't, you can't cheat. If you cheat, you gain materially, but you would never want to gain materially at the expense of giving up your faith. And you're coming to a fork in the road. You're coming to a crisis. You're coming to, if I could call it, I don't like to say that, a Mount Moriah experience. You're 10 years down the line. You're 20 years down the line. Abraham was 30 years down the line. And he still trusted God. That's the issue. I don't think James is talking about, I go to church, I sing a song, I go to Young Life. I don't think he's talking about going to Hume Lake. I think he's talking about having a faith that's so deep, so rich, that when you get to the crux of the most difficult circumstances in your life, you say, I'm going to follow the Lord. And it's not going to be with perfection. Abraham wasn't perfection. But all I know is he believed in the promises of God. God counted it to him as righteous, Genesis 15. And that faith that he had at the beginning there showed itself 30 years later. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, faith and works are bound up in the same bundle. He that obeys God trusts God, and he that trusts God obeys God. He that is without faith is without works, and he that is without works is without faith. Remember that song a couple weeks ago? If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. And then it goes on. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely what? Show it. That's all he's talking about. That's a real faith.